The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the fifth episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, 23rd of September, and in this podcast, we will hear the best editorials from the world on the rise of far-right parties in Europe, the war in Ukraine, and the debate on climate change and renewable energy. We'll start right away with the first series of editorials. Today's first series of editorials addresses fears over the rise of several far-right parties in the European Union. Last September 11th, Swedish general elections were held. The leading party remained the Social Democrats with 30% of the vote, followed by the Sweden Democrats with 20%. It is precisely the result of the Sweden Democrats that is of concern, since despite its name, it is a xenophobic and authoritarian far-right party. In this election round, the Sweden Democrats recorded the best result in their history and overtook the moderate party, Sweden's historic centre-right party. The first comment concerns precisely the outcome of the Swedish vote, and it comes from the American newspaper, The New York Times. Swedish writer and columnist Elisabeth Asbrink draws an unsettling profile of the Sweden Democrats' party, beginning with the words used by a party representative in commenting on the election result. Helg Sager. Although literally translated, this expression means holy victory, at the same time, it is dangerously close to the expression Hell Sager, which is, instead, the Swedish translation of the famous Nazi expression Sieg Hell. Aspring has no doubt about the party's Nazi origins, born out of the merger of two neo-Nazi groups in the late 1980s. Of the 30 founding fathers of the party, 18 had Nazi affiliations, and some of these had even served in the SS. Over time, the party softened its image, for example by banning its members from wearing military uniforms. But the columnist argues the xenophobic and authoritarian ideology remains the same. Coming to more immediate issues, moreover, the party is very accommodating towards Russia. Despite the disturbing result of the election, the editorial concludes, we should not resign ourselves. On the contrary, we must keep in mind that the majority of the country's population is not in the ranks of the Sweden Democrats. We remain on the theme of the rise of far-right parties, but we'll go to the opposite side of Europe and to Italy. On Sunday, the southern European country will also go to the polls to choose a new government. The party given as a favorite in this case is Fratelli d'Italia, led by Giorgio Meloni. Who is the real Giorgio Meloni? wonders the editorial staff of the British newspaper, The Financial Times. Meloni indeed seems to be used to presenting conflicting versions of herself. For example, she calls herself a center-right conservative, but has refused to disavow the roots of her party, whose flag still carries the fascist flame. In addition, she supports the need for a naval blockade to prevent migrants from reaching Italy, and she frequently rails against the LGBT lobby. During the campaign, however, she presented a more moderate face, since the main concern of voters is the cost of living and not immigration. Part of her appeal is coming across as a novelty, having steadfastly refused to join Mario Draghi's unity government. If the election go as expected, 
and thus Maloney becomes prime minister, then the newspaper's editorial board concludes, we will soon find out who she really is. The last editorial on the subject comes from the German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung. Given the growing number of anti-European governments, how many more right-wing governments can the European Union handle? Wonders columnist Hubert Wetzel. A recent resolution of the European Parliament also called Hungary an autocracy with elections. The Polish government also frequently violates the rule of law. Now Sweden and Italy may also have governments hostile to the EU. This is a paradoxical development, Wetzel argues. On the one hand, approval of the EU in Europe has never been as high as it is today. But on the other hand, Europeans continue to vote for those who instead accuse the EU of being the cause of all their country's ills. The motivation can be found in the EU's mismanagement of the migration crisis. Therefore, the journalist stresses the EU cannot afford to repeat this mistake in the current energy crisis, which will push tens of millions of people to the brink of economic and social abyss. One also has to wonder why anti-European governments seem to have abandoned any desire to leave the euro or Europe. For Wetzel, the right-wingers are very interested in the EU's money, much less in its values. This is a trend of anti-European governments, but one that absolutely must be reversed. The editorial closes. No state organization survives unless it is held together by shared values, ideals, and common interests. The next editorial discusses the progress of the war in Ukraine, the response of the West, and the possible geopolitical consequences of the conflict. The first comment comes from the Italian newspaper La Repubblica, which hosts the opinion of Joseph Borrell, the high representative of the Union of Foreign Affairs and Security Policy. For the EU representative, Europe must continue with the strategy followed so far. This strategy can be summarized into three points. Sanction Russia, mobilize to address the energy crisis, and provide economic and military support to Ukraine. In coordination with the G7 and our partners, Borrell also notes, We are discussing plans to limit the price of oil exported from Russia. Sanctions have a dual function to send a signal and to force Russia's hand, the editorial reads. In addition, the EU has made the historic decision to end its dependence on Russian energy, sending a very clear signal. Data on Russian exports prove that the strategy followed so far is the right one. Russian coal export volumes have recently dropped to the lowest level since the beginning of the invasion. This proves the Kremlin's inability to find other buyers, Borrell explains. With the strategy the West has put in place, the European representative concludes it will be virtually impossible for the Kremlin to reverse the course of the war. Losing on the Ukrainian battlefield will not unseat Putin is the headline of Hugo Blevet Mondi's editorial, published in the Belgian newspaper EU Observer. According to the columnist, a policy advisor on Russia and Eastern Europe at the British Parliament, despite significant Ukrainian progress, a Russian defeat would not necessarily result in regime change in Moscow. According to political scientist Adam Chevorsky, quoted by the author, the authoritarian balance rests on three pillars, economic prosperity, lies and fear. 
The Russian president reportedly gained popularity during the early 2000s thanks to a favorable economic climate for his country's economy. Around 2013, however, due to government corruption, the economic situation deteriorated, to the detriment of the population in particular. Unable to ensure economic prosperity for the Russian people, Putin relied on the other two pillars, fear and deception. Blevet Mundy notes, Putin could then pass off military defeats as evidence of what the Kremlin claims is an existential threat to Russia. The pillars of fear and deception on which Putin's control over Russia is based must therefore be dismantled. Western leaders should therefore, according to the author, move beyond confrontation as a guiding principle of East-West relations. So far we have talked about how the European Union is doing and what consequences the conflict might have. But there is another consequence to look at the reconstruction of Ukraine when the war is over. Post-conflict reconstruction is the focus of the editorial by Cristina Manzano, journalist for the Spanish newspaper El País. In the reconstruction process, the Ukrainian government, with the support of its allies, will have to answer three fundamental questions. What to rebuild, what model to follow, and where the money will come from. Reconstruction will be an opportunity not only to modernize Soviet-era infrastructure, but also to reform institutions. For Manzano, reforming institutions means ensuring a democratic future, judicial independence and fighting corruption, so as to bring the country closer to EU standards. If so far we have answered the questions of what to rebuild and according to what model, there now remains a no small question, who will fund it? The Ukrainian government estimates that $750 billion will be needed for reconstruction, while the ECB has estimated that it will take $1,000 billion, the columnist points out. According to Manzano, the solution is to unite the efforts, as they are already doing in the ongoing conflict of Ukraine, the EU and the US, also involving other allied countries such as Canada, Australia, Japan and South Korea. But most of all, she concludes, it should be the EU that carves out a leading role, having a special and strategic interest in the future of the Eastern European countries. The last editorial of the day deals with the topic of climate change. The first commentary on the subject is by Jeff Sparrow, columnist for the British newspaper The Guardian. As humanity faces what is perhaps the most serious crisis of our time, climate change, why is it, the columnist asks, that so many governments pass more or less stringent laws against those who protest against fossil fuel companies? Environmental economist Aviel Verbruggen, asked about the issue, estimates that the fossil fuel industry has generated $2.8 billion in profit every day over the past 50 years. You can buy every politician, every system with all this money, the economist claims. The author of the editorial then lists a series of laws against those who protest the use of fossil fuels. And while it is not surprising, Sparrow states, that some of these laws are enforced in dictatorships, such as Egypt, it is striking that there are also examples of them in democratic countries, such as Germany, the United States and Australia. Notably, in the latter two countries, pro-climate protesters might face jail time, even in the case of peaceful protests. 
None of this is an accident, the article reads. According to the columnist, corporations and politicians who serve them are readying for intensified clashes between the few who benefit from climate change and the vast majority who suffer. Environmentalists, therefore, Sparrow concludes, have in turn to intensify theirs as well. One of the most controversial points in the renewable energy debate concerns nuclear energy. In this regard, let's hear two different opinions on this issue. Farhad Manju, a columnist for the American newspaper The New York Times, believes to use a metaphor that responding to such a climate emergency with nuclear power is like calling on a slot to put out a house fire. What does he mean? Nuclear power is much slower to build than most other forms of energy, and it is also much more expensive, he explains. Just look at the 63 nuclear reactors that have been built since 2011. On average, it has taken about 10 years for each reactor. To compare with renewable energies such as wind or solar power, in 2020 and 2021 alone, the world will add 464 gigawatts of power generation capacity, more than all the nuclear power plants currently operating in the world. But the columnist is keen to point out that he is not entirely against nuclear power, quite the contrary. It is a construction of nuclear power plants in countries where energy needs are growing little or not at all that it is an unnecessary expense. In places like China, India and other regions where energy demand is growing, Manju points out, new nuclear plants might have an important role to play. But in first world countries without nuclear power plants, the editorial suggests, it would be wiser to invest directly in solar or wind power. In closing the article, the American columnist, in support of his argument, quotes an expert in the field. Nuclear power was an incredible zero-emission resource for its day. But for much of the energy system today, that day has long passed. In favor of nuclear power and of more investments in research and construction of new reactors, on the other hand, is Nicolas Bavarez of the French newspaper Le Figaro. For Bavarez, the role of nuclear power is decisive both on the front opened by Moscow with the gas war and in the ecological transition. The goal of eliminating emissions implies at least doubling electricity production in Europe by 2050, dates the French journalist. In support of his view, Bavarez argues that nuclear energy is the only one that is carbon-free, controllable and sovereign. It therefore follows that there is no ecological transition without a significant share of nuclear power in the European energy mix, a source of energy in which France should return to investing. For the columnist, the overhaul of his country's energy policy should be based on four priorities extending the lifespan of current power plants to 60 years, launching a new generation of reactors, supporting innovation in small and fourth-generation reactors, and reorganizing the European electricity market according to supply and energy security. Nuclear energy is by no means a relic of the past, Bavarez concludes. It is an important key to the defense of freedom and the fight against climate change. We have come to the end of the fifth episode of the second season of The Window on the World. We thank you for following us and we look forward to seeing you next Friday, always with the best editorials from Europe and the world. 
This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza. And at the microphone, it's me, your host, Gail Rago. See you next week.